0: By way of introduction, I'm going to just simply touch on a few aspects of the book of Amos that perhaps you've seen thus far as I've been making my way through the book. Now, the book is often called a hopeless book because it portrays just how bleak, ultimately, that the situation is for the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, I'm sure many of you are starting to resonate with that as I continue to preach through it. I would, however, argue that if we were to take the prophet's message to heart, especially in the broader church of America— we would be all the better for it. Now, the reason I say this is that if we look at the book of Amos correctly, it truly reveals just how much of our hearts can remain divided. Even thousands of years later, we can see the reality that much of the same junk that Israel deals with is the same junk that you and I deal with on a daily basis. Now, we tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We fool ourselves into thinking that most of the time we are uh, doing things that are not really all that tainted by the reality of sin. We imagine our intentions are pretty much good all the time. We generally desire to do the right thing, and that even when we do these things, we don't hold our best interests at heart. But Amos shows us that when we start to strip away the veneer and pull back the pretenses, if you will we put up before everybody else. Ultimately, we are sinners through and through. You may wonder why I want to drill that message home each and every time I get up and preach on this book, albeit in a slightly different manner. Why haven't I, for instance, preached on something that's a bit more encouraging or uplifting or comforting? Many of you know me as a guy who simply preaches wrath and judgment. That's all you've seen me do here. Now, I'm going to blame shift a little bit here, but Matt Henry is the one who actually tasked me with the minor prophets, so I don't have much of a choice. <laughs> However, if I did, I would do it all over again. And the reason I would do that is that I don't believe you and I actually truly understand the weight and the gravity of our sin. I just don't believe it. And for that reason, I also think that we have a difficulty understanding the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. And so little by little, my goal with this book as I'm preaching through it, especially as we're looking at it today, is that I could help you examine the diamond of God's judgment, if you will, that as we turn it and examine another facet, another shade or depth of it, that we would see what judgment looks like, not only as we are examining the nation of Israel, but that we would see what that looks like in ourselves, because whether or not you and I like it, the Bible speaks to this reality over and over and over again, Now, Jesus spoke of wrath more often than we would like to admit, and so we have to deal with it as uncomfortable as it might be. Now, today, the facet of judgment that I want us to examine is simply the remainder of chapter five here, and that's God's judgment as it's brought against those who have misplaced faith. There are three signs of misplaced faith, ultimately. The first one, a false hope, the second, false traditions, and the third, Most obvious of which being false gods. Now, if you would turn with me to chapter 5, we'll start by looking at verse 18 here. Now, the first thing I want to bring your attention to is the prophet begins this message again with this incredibly shocking message of judgment. He pronounces woe upon a people, but notice what the woe is pronounced upon them for they're those who long for the day of the Lord. Now, if you didn't know it, the pronouncement of woe is always an incredibly bad thing in scripture, and it's an especially bad thing for the Israelites here, and the reason for that is relatively simple. However, when you're hearing that from the mouth of a prophet, it's always indicating that it's tightly connected to divine judgment. So when you hear the word woe, it is not merely an expression of them saying, I am undone, but the fact that they are undone as a result of God's impending doom upon them and the nation. Now, it's obviously connected in the same way here. However, it's important to know that a pronouncement of woe is intended to strike dread in the hearts of the people. It is to cause them to tremble under the weight of it. It's not just bad news. It is literally the worst news you could possibly hear, and it's simply because God himself is the one who gives that pronouncement. It's coming from the Lord of all creation, and that's why it strikes terror, because it has ultimate authority. It has ultimate certainty. What's more unique here, again, is that woe is pronounced on these people. Why? They long for the day of the Lord. Now, some of you might gloss over that in your Bible reading, but The day of the Lord is an incredibly significant term. It's referred to in the Old Testament a number of times. Sometimes it's used in a way of speaking of events that are about to take place. They will be partially fulfilled in the very near future, just like it is here, like he's speaking of the judgment through the Assyrians. However, I use that word partially for good reason. That's because the day of the Lord always has his ultimate aim or ultimate purpose and fulfillment found in the last of all days being the day of judgment or the end times as we would refer to it. And so what I want you to understand about its usage here is that it's gonna be filled partially, right? They're gonna see judgment by the hand of the Assyrians as God's tool of judgment upon them, but it's also gonna be fulfilled completely in the last of all days. And what I mean by that simply is that they are gonna be judged by the hand of God here in the very near future, but he will visit them in eternal judgment. And they await that day, This very day, that judgment will be an utter final end where they will be condemned to an eternity in hell. So right now, as we even sit in service, they are awaiting that final judgment. Now, this is a big deal because any good Hebrew knew that the day of the Lord, as far as when God returns, he does so. It's a good day for them. It's a day of celebration. It's a joyous day because God promised to right every single wrong and especially defeat those three great enemies we know so well as sin, death, and Satan. And so for them, they see it tightly connected to a day of hope, a day of ultimate redemption, a day when they will be freed from the consequences of sin, Much like we have a great hope in the return of Christ, because we know that all creation groans under the weight of sin and that it must be made new, the Israelites had a similar or the same hope. But Amos looks at these people and he tells them, woe to you. And why does he say that? Well, look with me now at verses 18 through 20. Well, he says, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Then he answers and continues in verse 19, It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear confronts him, or he goes home, leans with his hands against the wall, and a snake bites him, will the day of the Lord not be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? To the people of Israel, he says, this day is not to be a day of comfort for you. It's a thing of terror. And the reason for that is that it is certain, unavoidable judgment for them. That's what he means here when he says it will be a day of darkness rather than light. He means it's a day of reckoning rather than a day of deliverance for them. And so he ultimately reveals that their hopes are unfounded. Their hopes are misplaced. Notice he gives a simile. He's describing what that day will be like for them He says, it's like a man who escapes the clutches of a lion only to be seized by a bear. And ultimately what he's saying here is that whatever direction that you go to flee, wrath is staring you down in the face, Israel. The wrath of God is waiting for you. Now, the imagery he continues to use here is actually quite vivid. So again, he, he supposes that the man escapes the wrath of a lion, therefore he meets a bear, and then escapes the bear, but as he runs with full speed to his home, the place he thinks is actually safe, he leans his hands upon the wall to catch his breath, and a snake bites him, and he dies anyways. He inevitably meets his end. He's saying to these people that no matter what efforts you go to, to avoid my judgment, that is the judgment of God, I will be waiting for you. As a psalmist says, there is no place in all of creation in which you and I can hide from the gaze of God. He says, if you go to the heavens, he is there. If you and I were to go to the deepest, darkest depths of the sea, he is there. Surely, if we go to the remotest corners of the earth and to the furthest regions of the deepest jungles, God is even there. And ultimately, this directed at Israel, he says that the darkness simply cannot hide you, for the night shines as the day before the Lord. Indeed, the day of the Lord that is coming will be to you darkness rather than light. Now, all of this is designed to shock them or to pull them out of their stupor, if you will. He's doing it with this singular goal in mind. These are people who have little to no understanding that all of their hopes, all of their expectations are simply going to be pulled out from underneath them because they have a false hope. He's saying, essentially, you are a people that are unbelievers. You have fooled yourselves into thinking that you are the children of God, And so his message to Israel over and again here is that they are deceived. And so little by little, brick by brick, Amos dismantles all of the stuff that they've caught up in to bring an excuse before God and says, ultimately, I am not impressed with you. He calls them to repent. But ultimately, he's trying to get them to see their true predicament before God because even though he has said, you are already dead, again, they still don't quite grasp the significance of it. He has laid out before them that they are guilty of incredible crimes, not only before God, but before man. And all the while, they still hope that on the day when God destroys the enemies of his people, that they will be counted as his friends. However, the prophet, again, simply flips their expectations on their heads. He tells them on that day, God is coming for you, Israel. They have a hope that God will redeem them from their enemies, but they neglect to think all the while that they are the very enemies from which he will deliver his genuine children. Their hope, in other words, again, is misplaced. They believe they, insta- they stand to inherit the promises for good that the children of God are standing to inherit here. So he tells them quite plainly, you may be born of Israel, but the only promises that belong to you are the curses found in Deuteronomy 28 and following. And so he says, again, with a rhetorical question, verse 20, will the day of the Lord not be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Again, they presumed falsely. They presumed that God's promises for good were for them. And if we are honest with ourselves, this is a thing that is tempting It's a constant danger for any of us who claim Christ today. Many, beloved, and I do mean many, will profess to love Christ, and yet they falsely presume they are Christian. Think of some that you know who have a hope in the day of the Lord, that is the return of Christ, and yet none of their lives are mirroring the profession of faith they hold to. Or maybe you know others or maybe you yourself are in this boat where you said a prayer at one point in your life and you think that that is what saves you or that you grew up in the church and, and so you think that by somehow, by some merit of your family's existence, you are in Christ, Perhaps you or I might be in a position of loving doctrine or theology so much that all the while we see it as a series of facts to be memorized and spouted off, and yet it has never led us to a greater devotion or love of God himself. And so we use it as a bludgeon to beat people with, but we never actually turn around and apply it to ourselves in any meaningful way. Perhaps you are fooled into thinking that because you serve God, That's an indication of your love for him. Christ himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, that is the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And yet on the day of the Lord, if this is you or if this is I, with a false hope, we will only hear those terrifying words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Again, there is no place to hide or conceal our rebellion. There is nothing in our hearts which remains hidden from his sight. And so the question is, do you believe that? We can also be found guilty of holding to the various hopes that this world wants us to love and cherish so deeply. Perhaps it is in things like the president or the Supreme Court or even the American dream, if you will. We believe these institutions can usher in an age of prosperity and goodness so long as the right people are in office and that the right people make the right decisions When the wrong guys are in office, the attitude is given over to complaint and despair and bitterness the whole entire time. But have you stopped to think that even when the the quote-unquote right people are there, that if these people are outside of Christ and that these institutions themselves are all under the power of the evil one of this age? He is the God of this age, and Satan's influence knows no boundaries or affiliations. Have you considered that his influence runs deep throughout every single worldly philosophy, every single institution that you and I know, even the schools that we send our children to, we fool ourselves time and again by thinking that something can remain neutral. But the fact is they are either at enmity with God or they're united in Christ. Or you can be like any number of people who hope in your money, your possessions to keep you safe. Now Matt has made this comment a number of times and I agree with him fully, but I'm not convinced either that we actually take Jesus at his word when he says we cannot serve both God and money because we are always and ever trying to find some way where that works, where we can have both, if you will. We might tuck Jesus away over here and we might tuck our money away over here, yet never do we bring them under submission to the word of God completely. Now Amos just simply denies this reality, and we've already seen it. In every single way, the Israelites, whatever they had their hope in, failed them because it was not God and God alone. And ultimately, all of these things are going to fail us if our hope is misplaced. The reason for that, again, is that Satan is involved in every single aspect of humanity. His influence runs as deeply in commerce as it does in politics. Perhaps it is even freedom in which you hope. Freedom's not a bad thing. Freedom's a good thing. But the reality is that you and I could lose every single thing that we know and love about freedom, everything that is even good, and yet there is a hope that can never be stripped away from us in Jesus Christ. I hope you understand my intent in doing this is not to beat you over the head with all these things but to just simply explain that whatever we put our hope in actually matters. Misplaced hope is a dangerous, dangerous thing. False hope, whether it is by our own delusions of being right with God when we are not, or if it is placed in some sort of system as if it's going to deliver us, only leads to despair. Now our hope must be based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And it is only from this spot that we can then look into every sphere of life and let that be the influence upon it rather than the opposite way around. Christ is the sure foundation and the only foundation from which everything else springs. And if we place hope in anything else, it will ultimately be proven false. The Israelites are guilty of a false hope. Again, they they believe that they are right with God and on the day when he comes to judge all of the earth that they will be his people rather than his enemies. Now, we can be guilty of the same exact things without even trying, beloved. But the end result, again, is a misplaced faith. Again, the first sign, a misplaced faith, what the Israelites are guilty of here is a false hope. We look now to the second sign, which is a false tradition or maintaining false traditions. Look with me now to verses 21 through 24. Again, piece by piece, the prophet dismantles every single instance of their religious hypocrisy. Because of the law of Moses, these guys were commanded to attend several feasts and festivals throughout the calendar year. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of what each of these actually looked like or what they were for, because that's not really his purpose here. However, you're going to recognize some of the names from your Bible reading, and if you want to actually know more about them, I included it in the notes, but you can look up the passages either later today or sometime this week when you have more time. However, I am going to name them. So the various festivals, they were commanded to observe throughout the year. One of the most significant, of course, would be the Passover, or the Festival of the Unleavened Bread. We know about that one. That's from the book of Exodus, right? Right. But you have other ones, such as the offering of the first fruits, the festival of weeks, the festival of trumpets, the day of atonement, which, again, is incredibly significant because bound up in this one is when they just offer things, uh, uh, sorry, they put up offerings in order to accomplish forgiveness of sin. And then you have the festival of tabernacles. And so you have six right here that they would be commanded to attend, no matter what, every Israelite had to do it. Now, some debate on whether or not these guys would have actually attended all of these festivals, but I believe they did. And the reason for that is relatively simple. The text just doesn't say they didn't. Instead, all we have to do is ask, what does the text say? Well, look at verse 21. The Lord says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your festive assemblies. And so the point is, they were faithful to do it. They were faithful to go. They likely made a spectacle of these like any good Jew would have. But notice that he tells them, I hate, I reject, I do not delight in any of it. They went. God simply rejected it. Now, in the Hebrew, the term delight here literally means to smell. So what the prophet is alluding to is that Old Testament language we find whenever offerings are made, when he said it is a well-pleasing aroma to God. And what that meant was simply that whatever the sacrifice may have been, that God accepted it. It actually delighted him. But he's telling them now that instead of it bringing delight to him like it should, the stench of their offerings reach all the way to the throne room, and God is absolutely displeased and disgusted by it. Not only has the offering become distasteful, the people have become distasteful. And so he moves on to point out that even their personal offerings are despised. He says in the next verse, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, again, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fattened oxen. Now these were designated as voluntary offerings, meaning they didn't have to do it, but they did it in order to show appreciation for what God himself had done. They would have been burned up on the altar. And again, they would have been described if they were done correctly as a sweet smelling aroma to God, but pay attention to what he says, even of their own personal offerings. He will not accept them. He won't even look at them. In fact, God says he turns his face away from them and he won't even acknowledge them much like he did with Cain. In the same way, the festivals were repugnant. The voluntary offerings proved to be an offensive smell. Then he continues in verse 23. He offers here the first of really two commands in our passage today. So look down with me at verse 23. God commands them, Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. In essence, he just tells them, stop doing what you're doing. And it's interesting here because he actually uses a singular pronoun. So he's not speaking to the whole nation when he says to stop doing what you're doing. Take away from me the noise of your songs. He's calling individuals here. Now, if you remember, the reason why is that God has said the northern kingdom is already dead. They have no hope of redemption as a nation, but he's saying as people, repent. Now, if it wasn't bad enough that all their offerings are rejected by God, he then tells them essentially, your songs are a cacophony of noise. So here you find all these Israelites are making a grand celebration for God, right? They come with their songs and you can really just imagine it if you put your mind to it a little bit. The singers are all joyously leading people. The harps and whatever musical instruments accompany them are playing along with them, and it really would have been a great thing to behold. You and I probably would have gone and loved every bit of it because it would have been awesome to see. And yet, what does God tell them? Stop it. Shut your mouths, drop your instruments, drop all the pomp and circumstance, in other words, and just be quiet. I will not even hear it. Now, the first thing this brings to mind, at least for me, is the whole Christian music scene. You think of all the people that are out there, there's a tremendous number of talented musicians. And I mean, they are great musicians. They sell out concerts, and yet their theology is abysmal. They can't even get the most basic elements of the faith correct, meaning they don't even understand the gospel and put that forward in their songs. And if that's not the case, look at their lives If they're not defecting from the faith at some point, meaning they just ditch Christianity altogether, they're caught up in all sorts of evil many times. This is the same exact thing that he's saying essentially that Israel is doing. They're just an evil people and they're putting forth all sorts of great pomp and circumstance in their songs. And he says, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. Stop it. They are not a people characterized by justice and righteousness. In other words, they are not a people defined by who God is and what he requires. Now, we know this simply by looking at verse 24, which is the second charge he gives them here. It carries a force of a command. He says to them, but, so stop all the noise, stop the cacophony, stop your clanging, but let justice roll out like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, again, it's interesting because the pronoun he uses here when he says to you, meaning the Israelites, is again singular. He's not referring to the whole kingdom necessarily. He's calling individuals, again, once to repentance. But notice what God is actually telling them. He's saying that all of your festivals, all of your feasts, all of your offerings, the big flashy songs that you put on each time you're coming to do these things has only further stored up the wrath of God against you. You could think on that all day long and apply it in so many different contexts, can't you? Suffice it to say, though, for those who have a misplaced faith, what he's simply saying is that all the religious activity in the world will only kindle more anger from God. It will only ever continue to kindle more wrath against them. Well, the goal with God has never been for his children to fill up their lives with a bunch of religious activity, if you will. It is that as they are doing all of these things, as they are participating in the life of the community, or as you and I are participating in the church, that our hearts are in it. That our hearts are in it. For the Israelites, they are commanded to do these things, right? But their hearts were far from God. And so he indicts them with these charges here. Again, the nation has no hope of redemption. He's calling individuals from within her to repent. But look with me now and see how he is doing it. He says, For one, stop your empty performance, religious rituals, let justice roll out like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Now, this ultimately is the heart of your entire passage here today. He's building around this idea of an ever-present flow of justice and righteousness that he says should be characterizing this nation rather than what we do see, which is injustice and unrighteousness. Now, the two terms, justice and righteousness, actually are incredibly significant. Unfortunately, though, they get twisted up with all the social justice garbage that's floating around the church right now. So what I want to do is just simply touch on this very briefly. Both of them carry a legal and a moral sense to them. So he's not talking about being made righteous or just as a result of faith. He's not talking about God himself pouring out justice and righteousness. He is instead talking about these things before the proper application of the law of Moses. And so he's saying that in the courts and in their relationships, what ought to be flowing instead of their actions is justice. What ought to be characterizing these people is righteousness, Now, by justice, he refers to the fact that they have a system in place, right? It is the law. They are to be in submission to the law in all the ways they conduct their business, all the ways that they treat people, whether it's with equity or fairness, if you will, before the law of God. They are to obey the provisions of the law, and this spells out how they are to take care of people, like the widow and the orphan and the the poor among them. But likewise... They are also to obey the law's commands when it comes to things like stoning false prophets. They are to obey them when it comes to things like dealing with disobedient children, how kings are to rule, and so on and so forth. In other words, it affects every aspect of their lives. Now, righteousness itself just refers to basic moral conduct, again, in light of the law. It gives them a sense of right and wrong, if you will. And not only does the law inform us, but God himself informs them of this simply because of what he has done and how he is related to them. Now, to make that more clear, it's basically, it means by which he's saying, this is how you are to deal with sin in your midst. It is to be done, you are to be righteous, you are to be holy, and therefore in every aspect, that is to be exhibited. So he's not saying that merely by participating in the religious life of Israel with all the sacrifices, that things are going to be okay. He's saying that you must embody righteousness in your own personal life, but also the corporate life of Israel. It involves things like how they deal with those, again, who refuse to repent, how they treat their fellow brothers and sisters, and more than this. Uh, Both of these terms actually embody two sides of the same coin, if you will. And what I mean by that is it focuses on the central role of God himself. Even more clearly, the person, character, and actions of God and his revelation is what informs then how they must live. If they understand God correctly, the implication is that they will act correctly. If they love God, the implication is that they will love neighbor He's not telling them, abandon all the sacrifices, abandon all the festivals, or abandon all of the song. He is telling them, in the midst of all of that, though, they are to adhere, if you will, to the weightier matters of the law. To make that even more clear, they have perverted the entire system that God has set up, not only to bring them forgiveness, but to relate rightly with one another. And he says that instead of all of that, what must be your provisions, or what must actually define you is that your personal righteousness matches the sacrifice, if you will. Again, I don't mean in terms of saving them, but they must actually be a people who are characterized by goodness, love, and mercy. They've abandoned any sense of mercy and impartiality, though, before the law. And so as a result, he says, everything else you do is not only useless, it's actually despicable. The deeper problem, though, is that they don't actually understand what justice and righteousness are. So what that means is not only have they forgotten the law, they've forgotten their God. Both of these qualities flow from a proper understanding of God himself. And so he says, not only have you rejected all that I've called you to obey, but you have rejected me. And you've done it all in favor of enriching yourselves. In other words, they are a self centered people who desire their own benefit <clears throat> and they don't really care who suffers as a result. But again, the problem is we tend to look down our noses at Israel. In reality, many of us are characterized by the same qualities. And the hot topic in our own day is social justice, isn't it? It's a wicked, wicked movement, it's evil. People are heaping up burdens that the scriptures would simply never place on God's children. People assign racism to a group of people simply by the virtue of their skin color. They assign guilt for things that they have not done, meaning that they look at the ancestors of people in our country and say, you're guilty for that. They assign problems to people that aren't even necessarily problems of equity in terms of the law. There's no room for forgiveness, mercy, grace, or even a basic sense of unity. And think of how much is just ripping apart the church. They demand a system for partiality. In other words, things that are not looking towards any kind of equity, they demand people be treated impartially, unfairly, before God himself. Many cry for justice, but none of them actually want justice, because if you remember, justice is framed in terms of who was who God is and what he has done and what he declares for people to do. And therefore, they're going to stand before God at the end of all days and they will have to give an account and they will get justice, but they will not like it. And yet at the same time, we can have such a knee-jerk reaction against everything coming out of that, that we become guilty of neglecting biblical justice and biblical righteousness. Things like caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for those in need, especially the brethren. The biblical justice and righteousness demands much more than us just being theologically correct. It involves all those things that scripture calls the one another's. We are to love one another, John 13, 34. We are to be devoted to one another, Romans twelve ten. We are to honor one another above ourselves, Romans twelve ten again. We are to live in harmony with one another, that is, maintain unity within the church. Romans twelve sixteen. We are to build one another up. We are to bear with one another. That is meaning simply you put up with the person that you don't like. Colossians three sixteen or three thirteen. We are to look out for the interests of one another. Philippians two four, we are to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews ten twenty-four. And this is a short, short list that I compile. There's many, many more. The point in all this is to simply say that justice and righteousness must color every single aspect of our lives and how we deal with other people. If you're a boss, that means you treat your employee with the knowledge that one day you will stand before God and give an account for how you have been a boss. If you're an employee, you will stand before God with an awareness that he will call you to an account for how you have submitted yourself to your boss, how you've spent your time, Now, this carries into every single human institution and relationship that you and I have. That could be your spouse, that could be your children, your friends, your neighbors, the one nobody likes today, the police, the government. God has given us a plethora of commands with how we are to relate to every human relationship we have. In all of this, it is simply summed up in walking in God's commandments that includes things like being a blessing to those who are your enemies. That includes things like being sexually pure, not stealing, whether that's money, time, or whatever else. Telling the truth, keeping from all forms of gossip and slander and malice, being free of envy, drunkenness, sorcery, idolatry, jealousy, division, or faction. In other words, The demand on us in the church is much as the same simply because God has given us an understanding of what is good and what is right, and then therefore how we are to walk in that. But more than this, notice God's expectation for Israel here. These are to be ever-flowing, abundant qualities we are to have. Now, when he says justice is to flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, the picture he's giving here is a wadi. I don't know if many of you know what a wadi is, and if you don't, that's okay, but it's essentially a dry riverbed, and when the rains come and you have a torrential downpour, it fills up the riverbed, and it becomes a raging, rushing river, and so he's saying that your characterization of justice and righteousness must be like this raging, rushing river, but instead it shall never run dry. The point he makes is that if this is not what characterizes the people of God, meaning even you and I here, we can gather to celebrate every day of the week and sing songs with much excellence and skill and love every bit of it, but all of it will be useless. It would simply become just another false tradition and a long line of false traditions in the people of God, which again is a sign of misplaced faith. The first sign, if you recall, was a false hope. The second, again, false traditions. The third and final sign, which is probably the easiest and most obvious of the three to spot, the worship of false gods. Verses 25 through 27. Notice Amos calls back from his call to repentance on them and he indicts them, meaning he charges them with wickedness once again. And this time again, by the way of a rhetorical question, he asks them, Verse 25, did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? Now the prophet is asking this tongue in cheek. They offered sacrifices, all right, for the whole time that they were there. They were a zealous and religious people after all, but what he's doing is indicting them. You did not have devotion, pure devotion to Yahweh and Yahweh alone, and that's what verse 26 clarifies for us. Look down, he says that you also, that is, in addition to offering sacrifices to Yahweh, carried along Sikath, your king. Remember, God alone is to be Israel's king. And Kion, your image, is the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Now, we know that Israel had a problem with idolatry since day one. We remember the golden calf incident, right? But what you might not notice is that this incident gets picked up again in Acts 7 by the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and the reason for that is simply that they're doing essentially the same thing. Well, Stephen is rebuking the Jews who rejected Christ in his time in the time of the early church, and he, he's doing throughout this whole section is just simply showing that the Jews have always been a stiff-necked and rebellious people who rejected God and his prophets. So he goes all the way from Abraham all the way up to the person of Jesus Christ and then he lays the blame squarely at their own feet and he tells them, you have rejected and persecuted the prophets among whom Christ was the foremost. He says in part of his speech that God gave the Israelites over to the worship of the sun, moon, and the stars. And then he quotes Amos 5 here to prove his point. Now interestingly, there's a few differences between the two. What we see here in Amos and what Stephen says Stephen refers to Molech in the case of Sikath, and then Rephan in the place of Kion. And so we might ask, why is that? That seems to present some sort of difficulty here. But in reality, all they're doing is using names that their audiences would have been familiar with. In other words, the difference is simply the audience who's hearing it. But there's also a little bit of wordplay that Amos uses here, and he does it to ridicule not only the false gods, but Israel for their worship of the false gods. Now, in Amos, you lose it in the English translation, but he uses the vowel points in the Hebrew for abomination, and he places those under each of the names of these different false gods. And so he's saying that in a time of wilderness, Israel worshipped abominations. Now, what's even more interesting here is that the names that he uses in Amos are the same names that the Assyrians would have known these gods by. And so in essence, he's saying in a rather clever way, You worship not only abominations in the wilderness, but you want to worship the false gods of the Assyrians? Go ahead. Go nuts. God will make it happen for you. He will hand you over to them. You will go to be his people or their people, and they will be your gods rather than the one true God. And yet what happens as a result, as we know, is that these gods will be destroyed And he says to Israel, so too shall you. And this is exactly where Amos just turns that knife one final time for them, essentially. He says, you've been guilty of doing the same exact thing that your ancestors have done. The same thing that killed your fathers. He says again, the same thing that Stephen did. Israel has always had a problem with false worship. Now, if it didn't stop with the golden, or it didn't stop with the golden calf... And as you read the Old Testament, you see time and again how they go after false gods and how time and again God judges them for this. He sends a deliverer, they get out of this, and then once again they go right back into the same exact idolatry that they just got delivered from. Now these false gods go by various different names at various different times, but they all represent the same issue, which is that Israel was perpetually guilty, meaning always guilty of failing to worship Yahweh and God alone. They are guilty of worshiping the same gods from generation to generation. They never learn, even though they see their fathers die by the hand of their idolatry. In other words, he says, much like Stephen did, you are a stiff-necked people. You never get away to putting away your false gods. It's all summed up by unbelief. The false gods they worship are simply a product of their unbelief, Another way to put it is that the nation of Israel as a whole, not every single person, but as a whole, never loved God and God alone. Now think of the church. Then as a result of this, he says to them what he says in verse 27. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, this verse doesn't require a ton of exposition, so I'm going to treat it fairly quickly. But the point he's making here, again, is that they're guilty of the same sins of their ancestors, but as a result, they will face the same exact punishment. Your ancestors went after false gods, and they went into exile. Therefore, you too shall go into exile. Now, here we find the first specific mention of where they will actually end up going in exile, which is beyond Damascus. Up to this entire point that he has not actually said, you're going to Assyria. Now we know this to be Assyria because not only do we have historical record of it, but we have biblical record of it. And Assyria is northeast of Damascus here. And so even though it's not directly stated, we can piece it together. But we also know that later they will go into captivity by the hand of the Babylonians who then come in and ransack everything else. So Amos concludes this whole oracle of judgment then in chapter 5, Notice those fateful words once again. Thus says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts or the God of armies. Once again, God simply reminds him of who he is. Again, Israel has gone after false gods, and so he reminds him of the true God. He says, this God is God of all the heavens and the God of the earth. He holds both life and death in his hands, and yet he also judges the wicked He rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. He is the sovereign one who will send you, Israel, into exile. So though he will use Assyria as the arm of his judgment, God makes it painfully clear who's in control. And then he leaves them with a painful reminder, Israel, this is all a result of your rebellion because you know the one true God one final time, I remind you again of how easily we can be guilty of that today. Again, we tend to create a divide in our mind that says what we do on a Sunday morning, that is when we get together and sing songs or we hear the word preached, that's worship. When scripture says every bit of our life is worship. We pretend as if an idol is only that which is made by human hands. It's only that which you physically bow down to. And yet the reality is that Scripture teaches another prospect that anything can become an idol to you, an ensnare to your own heart. The same temptations that were present for them are present today simply because sin is still sin, Satan is still the god of this age, and we are still finite creatures with soiled hearts. How quickly and easily do we give our affection to something that does not deserve it? How quickly do we forget the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? Every time we sin, if you didn't know it, we say to God, not your will be done, but my will. Every time we sin, we say in that moment that the love we have or should have for God, rather, is not good enough. We exchange that love for another thing, which is a created thing, in place of what he tells us is good and righteous and just. And it's something we know that will not satisfy. The reality is I don't need to identify every single way in which this is true for you because I know that you're the same as me and that there are competing desires in your heart all the time. We do it without even trying half the time. You know just like I do how easily we can make gods out of men, women, wealth, prestige, honor, jobs, homes, or any number of things. John Calvin said it this way. The human heart is a factory of idols. We just churn them out one after the next. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and all of you guys who are new Christians, you're gonna find this out. When you let your guard down, how easily it becomes an issue. The things that you put away years ago, you have to revisit time and again and just put to death again because you were sown in the flesh. And yet he says the heart that pursues vain idols, the one who perpetually pursues idolatry, will be shown to have a misplaced faith. Just like those who have false hope, just like those who maintain false traditions, he says those who are guilty of idolatry, they fail to repent, have a misplaced faith. These three signs of a misplaced faith, though, again, are the exact opposite of genuine faith. It doesn't require a massive explanation. That we are told to place our true hope in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. We are to maintain our love for God in the midst of obeying his commandments. We are to be part and parcel to the life and blood of the community, which is the church. And in all of that, we are to reverently worship God and God alone not just on Sunday, but in every day of our life. But these are things that you and I battle all the time. We will battle them for the remainder of our lives. We will constantly deal with in some way, shape, or form having a misplaced faith. And the reason for that is because you and I are often no better than Israel. Despite how very often we want to be, you and I are often no better The wickedness I know in my own heart, my own mind. If you guys even knew the thoughts that came through my mind half the time, you would look at me in a very different way. (laughs) But if you've been tracking with all of this, and I know that you you are, you deal with the same garbage, don't you? you? If you've been tracking as I've been preaching through this book especially, it's been a very painful reminder of just how much we fall short each and every day. If you've been listening with a keen ear and an open mind and an open heart, you'll have seen just like I have how sin-sick and desperate our divided heart truly is, even on its best days. And so my goal, my hope for you today in light of all of this and what I hope to continue to do is just simply turn your attention once more back to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for some of you, this means for the first time you must look on him. My hope is that you would see really how terrible of a state you are in before God because he's continually angry with you every moment of every day. My hope is that you would see that there is no place to hide from God, that he sees all, knows all, and will judge all. But there is a safe place in which you can hide, and the only safe place in which you can hide is under the shelter of his wings. For some of you, my hope is to turn your attention back to Jesus Christ because you have left your first love. You have squandered the gift he's given you. Very simply, you just need to deny yourself and repent You need to pick your cross back up and follow Christ once more to the road he calls us to, which is death. You know of all people, just like I do, that there is nothing else out there for us. He holds the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? And for the rest of you, especially the ones despairing under the weight of constant guilt, my hope is to turn your attention once more to Christ as your comforter and your keeper, the one who promises to not lose one whom the Father has given him. That you would look once again to the cross and give thanks that he did not come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. Yet more than this, that you would recognize that in the midst of all of that, the work of Jesus Christ did not simply accomplish forgiveness, but redemption, which means restoration that not only are you looking forward to that great day in which he will return, but there is a promise here and now that by the power of his spirit, he is working to conform us into the image of his beloved son, all to the praise and glory of the father. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this text. I know that there are many, many hard words in it That as we look to it, that you reveal so much of our hearts, which are not only at war within ourselves, but at war with you often. I pray that as we continue to have these things stripped and revealed to us, that we would seek repentance, that you would empower us by your spirit, that we might actually walk in faithfulness to your commandments. But that all the while, we would be reminded of your ever-flowing, abundant grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ that we would not lose sight of the fact that if we are your children, that if we have genuine faith, we believe the gospel, that you look at us each and every day as if we are your son. We have an alien righteousness, not of our own, which means very simply, Father, that it is not up to us to accomplish this, but that you have given us Christ's righteousness. May we see that as sin is being revealed, it is a matter in which you are bringing us to mirror his image all the more, that you are bringing us to be a holy people, that you're bringing us so that we might be able to stand as a beacon upon the hill, shining the light of Christ before all men. And that ultimately, Father, that we would set it upon our hearts and minds to honor you in every single aspect of what we do. We know that we are frail, that we were given to so many different stupid things. But Father, change our desires, cause us to repent, cause us to walk in the newness of life in which you have called us, that we might glorify you, that we might bring our children to glorify you, we might bring our neighbors to glorify you, all for the sake of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that he might be known to the ends of the earth, and that on the day when you return, we might be found blameless and with great joy before you. It is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.